nice to see you guys. Um, if you're like me, you were distracted by two things while Shell was doing the notices. The first thing was Simon's arms, which are very, very impressive, group. But it's so cool with doing that story and knowing um, just some of what God did uh, in your life, in the business, and also with your brother. It's such a cool thing. And just the other people who may be um, really anal when it comes to details, the 19th of August flashed up there for the feast nights. That's a little gremlin in the system. I don't know how that happened. We had replaced that slide. But it is the 19th of July. So you've got a few weeks before we're going to be starting up there. So why don't you get your tickets today? Start praying for people you can invite. Just inviting people. I think that's going to be a really, really fun evening of eating and dancing and having just a good time together as a church. But if you are new here, you wouldn't know we are week four in a series through the book of Ephesians. If you've been here the last three weeks, you know that we've just been in Ephesians 1 the whole time. And Paul has been like a stuck record. He's just been going on and on and on about one thing, which is the gospel and identity. He just keeps beating this drum about who we are in Christ and who Christ is. So what he's done in this whole of chapter 1 is it's like he's wanted us to see through God's eyes how God sees us. And then after we've seen who we are through God's eyes, he's lifted our heads up to see who Christ is. He wants us to see Christ's glory and his power and actually to put our hope in Jesus, that our lives would be changed and that we would uh, begin to follow him more fully. And now as we enter into Ephesians chapter 2, this, excuse me, this week, what we're going to see is that the gospel comes and it collides with our stories. What is going to go on this week and next week as we preach through this chapter is you're going to see how the gospel comes and impacts the narrative of your story in terms of your relationships. Firstly, your vertical relationship with God. And secondly, your horizontal relationship with other people in the church, in the city, and in the world. And I want to encourage you to come and join us next week. We're going to look at Ephesians 2, verse 11 to 22. And this is a radical passage, which I think is just so important for Durbanites and South Africans today, looking at really our horizontal relationships with each other. You see, the city of Ephesus was a multicultural city. And what Paul is going to speak about is actually the division and prejudice and racism that was going on in that city and in that church, how different groups of people were divided, and actually how the gospel comes into our lives and it makes us one, how the gospel breaks down all of those things that would divide and separate and makes us a new humanity inside of Jesus. It's powerful and important for us to get into our hearts. But today, we're in Ephesians 2, verse 1 to 10, and Paul lays this foundation of our vertical relationship with God. And this is the most important relationship in our lives. Our relationship with God is the number one most important relationship in our lives. So understanding how that works and how our relationship with God can be right is probably the most important thing that you and I can know. So if you've got a Bible with you, can you turn to Ephesians 2? We're going to read verse 1 to 10 together. And what you're going to see as we go through this is that Paul focuses in on the human condition apart from God, God's solution to that problem, and how His grace changes everything. It's an amazing, amazing passage. Verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Okay. Those first three verses are quite heavy and intense. Now, if you're new to this church, it's like, welcome. <laughs> we're going to look at those things in a little bit more detail now, but we're going to see that Paul starts with some very strong language 
and some strong truth and then transitions into a little bit more. Verse 4 starts, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Passage ends a little bit more brightly and upbeat, you know. But let's get back to those first three verses and their strength and intensity and truth. Paul starts Ephesians 2 with our biggest problem, and it's this. Outside of Jesus, we are dead in our sins. Very, very strong. Outside of Jesus, we are dead in our sins. Now listen, no one likes to talk about death, you know. Particularly on our weekend, particularly on a Sunday morning, death isn't the coolest topic to be talking about. Because death is so final, and death is so powerful, and death is so strong. And the reality is for any of us in this room who have lost someone that we love, or have known someone that has died, we know the loss of death. Death is final end of life. Death is the greatest enemy, you know. And Paul is saying that there to be strong. He wants us to understand what we're saying because any of us that have lost someone know that there is nothing we can do, no matter how much we might want to, to bring them back. We just don't have the power. You don't have the power. They don't have the power. Nothing can bring a dead person back to life. And when Paul says here that we are dead in our sins, he wants us to see that we're spiritually dead. There's nothing we can do to bring ourselves to life. There's nothing you can do to bring yourself or me to life. We're dead. It's final. It's a concluded thing. Now, I want you to hear what I say here because this is really important. I think some people have misunderstood what Paul is saying here, and it has really affected their faith. When Paul says that we are spiritually dead outside of Jesus, he is not saying that if you are not a Christian, you are a bad person. That is not what he's saying here. You know, there is this reality that for some Christians, they think, you know, Christians are the good guys, and people who aren't Christians, non-Christians, are the bad guys. And there's this self-righteousness that can develop in us because of that. You know, I'm sure you know some Christians who think like that, and live like that, and look down on others because of how they see themselves, and how they understand the gospel. But that's not what Paul is saying here. Paul isn't saying this to Christians and everyone else. He's actually saying we're all on exactly the same page. Outside of Jesus, we are all dead in our sins. We are all separated from God. We are all on exactly the same page, but Jesus has made a way through his death on the cross that we can be forgiven of our sins and made alive again and reconciled to God. That is what Paul is wanting us to see here. And what he's saying is that Christians aren't better than anyone else, so we have no reason to look down on other people. We have no reason to be self-righteous or judgmental in any way at all because we were also dead in our sins. See, the gospel doesn't give us a reason to be proud. It actually gives us a reason to be humble. We have a reason to be humble because we were dead, and we needed Jesus to make us alive. And that's what he has done. The theological word is he has regenerated us. He's made us alive. We've been born again. We've entered into a new life in him. He has become our hope for life and salvation and reconciliation to God. So what this passage is saying is that the gospel isn't about making bad people good. 
It's about making dead people alive. That's what's going on in Ephesians chapter 2. If you are in Christ, you have been raised from spiritual death to new spiritual life inside of Jesus. Just like Jesus was resurrected from physical death, you have been resurrected to spiritual life inside of him. And because he does it all, we've got no reason to take credit for it at all. That's an incredible thing. And then Paul follows on from this truth about us being spiritually dead in our sin. And he uses this phrase in verse 3, you are children of wrath, which is a personal problem, like the rest of mankind, which is a global problem. Welcome this Sunday, it's such a wonderful, upbeat, uplifting message. Just got to be honest here, like, looking at passages like this in the Bible is hard for me. As a preacher, it would be so much easier to kind of skim over this and just kind of put a positive spin on it, or just kind of dust it under the rug, start on verse 4 and go from there. But I don't want to do that. And I think the way that we preach through some books of the Bible is so that the preachers in this church can't just pick their favorite passages and ignore the hard topics. We're going to go through passages like this, and we're going to talk it through as uncomfortable as it can be, and as, it, as hard as it is for me to share, and maybe as hard as it is for you to hear. Because wait, there's more. In verse 2 and 3, Paul also speaks about the things that we used to follow before we were in Christ. He says, we follow the ways of the world all around us, the ways of Durban and South Africa and our world. He says, we follow the enemy, Satan, and his influence on our lives. And thirdly, he says, we follow our own sinful desires. But wait, there's more. When he says follow, he's not just saying we followed after them. The Greek is stronger. It means captured, enslaved, or mastered by those things. So when Paul is speaking about us being spiritually dead outside of Christ, and when he speaks about us being children of wrath, He's also saying we were enslaved, we were in chains before we were in him. It's a really uplifting start to your Sunday morning. Let's pray. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you around. I don't know if any of you guys have seen the movie The Greatest Showman. Okay, we've got one, two. Okay, there's a few of you. Listen, it is a musical for those of you who are not into that sort of thing, so I just want to warn you up front. Uh, but it is a little cheesy, but it's also moving. I got choked up. It's quite a beautiful story. And watching this movie with Shell last week or the week before, I just thought to myself, this follows one of those classic narrative arcs that you see in a lot of films. And what I mean by that is it starts introducing us to the main character, the protagonist, who in this case is Hugh Jackman, Wolverine in a musical. It's just crazy, right? So we're introduced to him, and then secondly, we're introduced to this dream that he's got, this huge dream for his future. And then a little bit further on, he achieves his dream. He's got everything that you want. I'm not going to spoil the movie for you, don't worry. He achieves it all, but then you look down, and you see you're 30 minutes into the movie, and Hugh Jackman has got the girl, and his dream has been fulfilled, and he's rich, and he's famous, and he's honored. And you think, oh no, 30 minutes, there's another hour to fill. Something has got to happen. Something's got to go wrong. No good movies, no good stories don't have tension and something to be overcome. You know, otherwise, we get bored. You don't find it interesting. So you know that the bottom's going to drop out of this thing. Something's going to go wrong. And it does. It does. So I don't want to spoil it for you. But there's so many movies like that where it falls apart. And the hero hits rock bottom. And they lose everything. Everything that their identity was built on. Everything that made them them is gone and is stripped from them. And they're hopeless. What am I going to do? And that's exactly what we find in Ephesians 2, verse 1 to 3. What Paul is writing about here is he's showing us that outside of Christ, we've hit spiritual rock bottom. 
We've got nothing going for us. It's the lowest place that we could be. We have nothing and we can do nothing. But what Paul does so amazingly is in verse 4, as we click over to the next verse, we have a turning point. And despair starts to turn to hope. And he starts to give us a glimpse of a new future that can be ours in Christ. And the next two words in verse 4 are probably the sweetest two words in the whole of the New Testament and the whole of the Bible. But God. But God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, verse 1. But God. We were following the prince of the power of the air, Satan the enemy. But God. We were enslaved by the sinful passions and desires of our flesh. But God. We were children of wrath. But God. That's what Paul is wanting us to see here. And I'm so grateful then that we serve a God and we've sung to a God and we've prayed to a God who enters into our story and comes to rescue us when we've hit spiritual rock bottom, when we've got nothing going for ourselves, when we are hopeless, when we are helpless, when it's like game over, lights out for us. He enters into the story to rescue us. I'm so grateful that in chapter 2, verse 4, it says, but God, not but God. Imagine that. Paul tells us, you're dead in your sins. You're enslaved by these things. You're a child of wrath. But Grant decided he was going to give it another chance. He was going to try and muster up the strength. He was going to try and break free from these things that enslaved him. He was going to try and raise himself to life. He was going to try and not be a child of wrath anymore. But Grant, doesn't that sound exhausting to you? At the lowest of the low, you've got nothing left to give. You've got to summon more strength and energy. That is not what the gospel is. The passage doesn't say, but Grant. It says, but God. And that's the good news of the gospel. It's not about what we have to do for ourselves, what we have to do for God. It's about what He has done for us already. If your story is a story of sin, and this passage shows us how seriously God takes sin, just look at the cross to see the cost of sin and the weight of sin. And Jesus put you in our place. God takes sin very seriously. But sin doesn't have to define your story. Sin doesn't have to be your destiny. Actually, sin might be your past, it might be your present, it might define who you were, it doesn't have to define who you are, it doesn't have to define where you're going. Actually, what Paul is saying here is that even if those things were your past, it doesn't have to be your future. But God. The reality is that Satan doesn't say, but God, to us. He says, but sin. He knows our pasts, he knows our struggles, he knows our idols, he knows the things that we've had to deal with in the past. So when you maybe leave here today and you think, oh, that was encouraging. I'm built up. I'm good. He says, but sin. But sin. I know your past. I know what you've done. I know the decisions you've made. I know the secrets no one else in that nice church knows. But sin. And you feel discouraged. And when you want to say, and when other people in our world want to say, but grant, try harder, do more, all of that, Jesus breaks into the story and he says, but God. It's not your sin that will define you. It's not yourself that will define you. God wants to redefine you in Jesus and by what he's done. And give you a completely new life in him. That's the gospel. And I want to ask you today, are you going to stay in a verse 1 to 3 life? Dead in your sins, enslaved by all these things, a child of wrath. Or would you like to enter into verse 4 to 10 life? Beginning a journey in Jesus where but God defines your life, defines your identity, defines your future, defines your destination, defines your destiny. Would you like to enter into a but God life today? Paul starts Ephesians 2 in this heavy way, showing us spiritual rock bottom to show us our great need. 
You know, for most of us, we don't go to the doctor unless we know that we are sick. We know that we need help. We know that we need something. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's showing us our spiritual condition so we know that we need a spiritual solution. We need Jesus in our lives. And verse 4 starts so encouragingly. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved. There's two, three-word phrases in there which just left off the page to me. Rich in mercy and great in love. That's the God we're talking about today. Rich in mercy, great in love. Even when you were in sin, even when you were those verse one to three things, you know, he loved you. His mercy was extended to you. He cared about you. And that's really important for us in Christ now because that means that when we continue to mess up, when we continue to fail, when we continue to struggle with the things we used to struggle with, God's love doesn't dry up. He still extends his mercy and love to you. That's the kind of God he is. Even then, he loved us. And even now, no matter what you're going through, he loves you and his mercy is great for you. And God made us alive in Jesus by grace. The great doctrine of regeneration. And guys, I want you to leave here knowing that Christianity is not about becoming a nice person. And it's not about starting a new spiritual regime. New year, new me, new religion, I'm going to do something like that. Christianity is about becoming a new person, and it's about being made alive in Jesus. That's what Ephesians 2 is saying to us. Verse 6, God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, I think some of us, we've gotten this idea. God has made us alive. He has resurrected us spiritually, like he resurrected Jesus physically. But I have a problem with that phrase there. God raised us up with him. Because I'm 32 years old. Jesus was resurrected just under 2,000 years ago. I was not resurrected with him. You know, I, I wasn't even like a twinkle in my great, 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 great grandfather's eye, you know, back then. But this passage says we were resurrected, we were raised, we were brought to new life with him. So the picture that Paul wants us to have is Jesus in a tomb, cold and dead, lying on a stone slab, and then the heart starts to beat. And he starts to get up, his eyes open, he sits up, the tomb, the stone rolls away in front of the tomb, and Jesus walks out. And when that happened, I walked out with him too. It doesn't make sense. Paul uses this interesting compound word there for raised together. It's the Greek word synergerin. And that word sin is where we get synchronized from, you know. I'm sure we all do this with our phones or with our computers. We sync stuff to one another or to the mysterious cloud where it goes out there and we know it's safe. It's been synced to the cloud. But what Paul is saying is 2,000 years ago, even more mysteriously than the cloud, somehow we were raised to life with Jesus. The synchronization thing was going on as Jesus was raised to life. Grant Clark has been raised to life with him 2,000 years before I would be born. And that is good news for us because that means that the work was done before you were born. You don't have to worry that you're going to lose your salvation if you mess up. You don't have to worry that God is going to be angry with you and reject you and kick you out. That synchronization happened 2,000 years ago. So even as we struggle in life and sin and mess up today, we are still raised to new life in Christ. That is what the cross means for us. Jesus was raised from the dead and was seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places 
we have been raised from the dead, and we have also been seated with him in the heavenly places. Now listen, that phrase also doesn't sound too exciting to me. I was trying to picture it, and I was thinking of God on his throne, and this kind of throne on his right-hand side, it's kind of got Jesus' name there, like reserved for him, like a film director's chair or something. And the idea is that Jesus is sitting there, and now in him we are sitting there too. It's, okay, that's great, thanks Paul. But for ancient people, the people in Ephesus that he was writing to, they fully understood what he was saying there. When a hero at war conquered an enemy, led an army to glory, defeating the enemy, and came back home, there would be a great celebration. You know, there would be such great honor for this leader, for this captain, that they would get the place of the greatest honor in the kingdom next to the king on their right hand. Sitting there, they would be honored by everyone else in the kingdom. And that is where Jesus is today. Jesus, the greatest man to ever live, the one who lived a perfect life and died on the cross for the sins of humanity, was raised to the right hand of God and sits in that throne in the place of greatest honor in all of the universe, which is kind of a hard thing to comprehend. But more than that, Paul is saying that we have been raised to life in him and that you and I now sit in the place of greatest honor in all of the universe. So the book of Ephesians has told us three things about where we are. Firstly, you're in Durban. You've been to prep school, seated on less than glorious green plastic chairs all around this room. Secondly, you're in Christ. And thirdly, now it's told us we are seated with him in heavenly places, in the greatest place of honor in the whole of the universe. Things are looking up for you Sunday morning. A little bit better than we started, am I right? Remember what it means to be in Christ. It means that when we believe in Jesus, all of our sins are forgiven and we are treated by God as if we were Jesus. You know, he sees us the way he sees Jesus. All of the things that are true of Jesus are true of us in him. And now God delights in you and honors you and accepts you and rejoices over you the way he does his own son. That's the good news of the gospel. And the great exchange of Christianity is that we've lived a sinful life and that he's lived a perfect life. And that he went to the cross. He took our place on the cross for our sin. He, the hero of the universe, was dishonored in our place where we deserve to be. And he took all of our stuff on himself so that we could have his place. So that we could be seated in the place of greatest honor in the whole of the universe. And we could get everything that he deserved. And the honor that is bestowed on him. That is the great exchange of Christianity. If you feel like you've been dishonored here, if you feel rejected here, if you feel like an outcast, if you feel like um, a misfit in the room today, I want you to know that Jesus took that honor for you and gave you the place of greatest honor. You are honored by the king and you are honored by all of heaven. That is an incredible truth. You are an honored person in the eyes of God. So if you can get seats to the royal wedding, it's okay. Shell was telling me about this friend from work. She knew her brother was going to the royal wedding. And I know some of you have told me, someone you know, his friend, whose friend is going, was going to the royal wedding. You don't have tickets to the FIFA World Cup final in Russia. It's okay. Because you are currently seated in the place of greatest honor in all of the universe. Not bad, eh? Thank you. I appreciate that. Amen, Anna. I'll take it. Things are turning out pretty well after verse 3. But wait, there's more. Ephesians 2 verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches 
of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Not only is all of this stuff ours now in Jesus, but what he's saying is one day Jesus will return and we'll be with him forever. And for the rest of time, for the rest of eternity, which we struggle to understand, you know, I'm struggling with decades, we're talking like billions of years at a time, God is just going to pour out his grace and kindness and love and mercy on you again and again and again. And he says there, this is immeasurable. Remember last week we talked about God's incomparably great power? The riches of his grace are immeasurable. And Shell and I watched a movie, sorry I'm going to talk about movies a lot today, called All the Money in the World the other day. It's about J, uh, J. Paul Getty, who was the richest man in the world at that time, and he was the richest man in the history of the world at that time. And he was probably the first billionaire in US dollars. There's a moment where his grandson is kidnapped, and they want a $17 million ransom, and he refuses to pay. This multi-billionaire. There's this interview with him where one of the journalists is speaking to him about his wealth and trying to work out how much money he's got, you know. They're saying, is it over $2 billion? They can't even fathom that now. And he says to them, if you can count all your money, then you aren't a billionaire. And I just thought, with God, we can't count all of his riches. We can't understand how great his grace and love and mercy is. It just goes on and on and on and on. And for the rest of time, that is just going to be poured out on you and I inside of Jesus. Oof. It's good news, man. Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 10. We'll end with this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, this is probably one of the most famous, well-known passages in all of the Bible. If you've been in church for a while, I'm sure you've heard someone talk about this. And I really would encourage you, as we go through the book of Ephesians, if you're going to memorize a passage, these three verses are probably ones you want to get into your heart and your head. This summarizes everything we've been speaking about today. This is a huge summary passage about the gospel of Jesus. And here it says, we've been saved in Jesus from all of that verse 1 to 3 stuff. Dead in sins, enslaved by all of these things, children of wrath. In Christ we've been saved from that, and we've been saved for all of this verse 4 to 7 stuff. All of the blessings in Jesus is what is ours now inside of Him. We've been raised with Christ. We have the seat of greatest honor in the whole of the universe, and God's richest treasures and blessings are yours for all time. Just going to enjoy them, you know? It's just going to be pretty amazing. It's all but God's stuff. Before you were spiritually bankrupt, but God is transforming your life and your future and your destiny, and it's all by grace. This is all what he's done. I haven't said one thing about what you shouldn't do. We've got nothing to boast about here. We haven't done anything. This is all what he has done for you and for me. All we have to do is humbly receive it by faith, and it's yours. Have you taken that step? Saying, okay, Jesus, I want to move from verse 1 to 3 into verse 4 to 10. I want to enter into the life that you've got for me. I want to enter into the salvation that you've offered to me. Would you do that to me? And then in verse 10, the last word I want to highlight is Paul calls us his workmanship. The word for workmanship in Greek is this word uh, poema, which is where we get the word poem from. Refer to a work of art, a statue, a song, architecture, a painting, even a poem. 
And Paul uses this word to say that you are a masterpiece. You are God's masterpiece. And then Christ wants to put on display for everyone to see. I went online and I just looked and thought, what is the most expensive painting that's ever been bought? It's a painting called Salvatore Mundi by Leonardo da Vinci, bought by the Louvre Gallery in Abu Dhabi for 450 million US dollars, which is about 6 billion rand. But that's crazy. Salvatore Mundi, savior of the world. It's a picture of Jesus. I'm sorry it's not up on the screen now. And Jesus is blessing the world as the savior. He's holding this glass orb as the king of the world. And I thought, how amazing is that, that the most valuable painting of all time is a picture of the one we've been speaking about today, the savior of the world, the king of the world. And I thought they were able to put a price on that. But Jesus put a price on your life too, his masterpiece. That's maybe the world's masterpiece, but Ephesians 2 says you are God's masterpiece. And the price that Jesus paid for you was himself. Jesus is priceless, and he died on the cross for you. God exchanging himself for man. And I just had this picture while I was praying for today, we were praying for the service, of some of us having these price tags in our lives, which are very, very low. Maybe you're here today and you think you're worthless. You have no value. Maybe actually people have told you that before. You are rubbish. Rather than actually being on a wall somewhere with a price tag, you feel like you're out in the trash. You with the black bags and the garbage, you are worth nothing. But what Jesus says, no, 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 you are a priceless work of art. And I think today what he wants to do is offer some of us, just take the label that you carry, the price tag you, you carry. He wants to peel that off and put a new price tag, priceless. You are hanging on the wall in God's home. You are something he loves to stare at as his masterpiece. And now what he calls us to harvest city to display the grace of what he has done as his masterpiece, as his artwork for the city of Durban to see, for South Africa to see, for the world to see how he's reconciled us from God to God. And he's taken these verse one to three people, people who are dead in sin, people who are enslaved by rubbish, people who are the children of God, and he's turned us into the masterpiece of God. Priceless value. Let's stand and pray together.